we are continuing in our study of Ephesians. We've read the whole chapter, but we want to come back and read our text for this evening, verses 3 to 14. So hear now the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of His glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and, and though we've read it twice, what a blessing it is to hear the truth of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that this evening that You would, that you would in fact, enlighten our hearts and our minds to this truth, and may, may it be planted deep within us. May we, may we come to a greater and more full understanding of who we are in Jesus Christ. And oh, that we might be different as we leave. To walk in that truth, to walk in the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So bless the reading of your word, bless the hearing of your word, bless now the preaching of your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. You may be seated. My kids all participated in athletics as they were growing up. And uh, in the case of my boys, I was typically their coach. And that had some positive and negatives that went along with that. Uh, as I looked back at that, and it was funny that I had already kind of put this together, and Wendy asked me this last night as we were driving to Fayetteville. She said, would you do anything different uh, in in those days as, as they were growing up. And my answer was, yes, I, I coached the boys uh, in baseball up until high school, and then I actually had the opportunity of coaching the boys through high school in basketball. Did I say that right? Baseball stopped, and then basketball continued on. Um, and as I look back at that, and I can say that with him sitting here, I, I, would, I would try to do a better job of encouraging. Um, I, I did, don't get me wrong, I, I think I did encourage... And I've checked in with them to make sure that they haven't been scarred for the rest of their lives. But I would, I would do less instructing and correcting and more encouraging. For my daughter, it was a little different. 
she participated in three sports in junior high and high school, and the one that I liked the most was cross country because I didn't know anything about it. And that left me in a position where all I could do was cheer. And so every Saturday we would show, we had to drive to, to Tulsa, it seemed like every week. And we, we'd get to Tulsa, and they would do their warm-up, and I would stand as close as I could behind the line from where they stood to start. And I would encourage, you know, don't, don't forget your pacing. Remember what the coach has told you, everything that you've done in practice, and try to encourage. And then the gun would sound, and then it was like this, this amoeba, kind of like little ones that play soccer. Uh, the parents would take off from the starting line and race to the next place on the course where they knew that they could, their kids would hear them. And it didn't matter. And we had, after three years, we had, or two years, we had, a, we knew where we were going to go next at each course. And so we were basically racing the parents to get to, to, to the, the prime spots. And as they would come running, then all the parents, my, myself included, you know, keep it up. You've got this. You know, keep your pace. You're doing great. You know, don't look behind you and, and all those things. And then they would run by, and then we'd all take off again to the next spot where we'd do it all over again. Until we would all race to that final stretch. And we'd all line up. And, and for the parents, it got louder and more intense because we thought the louder and more intense it got, you know, they would find the energy they needed to finish. And they would just, and you could tell they, they had, you know, I could never do it. And they, they were red-faced. And they, they just, everything that they had. And parents are yelling and they crossed the finish line. And because I didn't know anything about it, I would just come up beside her Tell her what a great job she did. Look for her time and start looking to next week. That's all I knew to do. And it was pretty good. And you say, why do you start there? Well, if you remember, this is, this is really what Paul's doing. He's, he's cheering them on. He's, he's cheering the church at Ephesus and those other churches on. He, he know, remember, he knows them. Uh, he's been with them. Uh, he knows who they are. Uh, he's loved them. He's lived with them. He's loved them. He's taught them. He's cried with them. He's admonished them. He knows the city in which they live. He knows the temptations that they're facing. He knows the sin in their lives. And so he's got this time in prison. And so he begins to write, to encourage, and to cheer him on. And what's interesting is he doesn't come up with a list to send them to say, if you will just do these things, he, he doesn't begin this way. He doesn't begin right off the bat saying, if you'll just do these things and start with the instruction and do these things and things will get better. Or he doesn't give them this list of correct. He doesn't start off with this list of corrections that if you'll just stop doing this, things will be better. Rather than beginning with instruction and correction, he begins declaring who they are in Jesus Christ. The imperatives or the commands will come later. He includes those. There is time for instruction and correction, but he doesn't do that in the beginning because he knows that those things are only going to come and are only going to be valuable and are only going to be worthwhile and actually be implemented if he starts with the declaratives. If he starts with declaring who they are in Christ, as Michael Horton says, he had to put wind in their sails before they could move on. And so what I want us to do is we walk through this passage, and, and I'm going to wait to the end to make some application, but I want us, as we walk through this, I'm going to use the, 
the we's and the us's because that's how Paul is writing. But I want us to think in terms of the fact that we're the next church in line to get this letter. It's been passed around and now it's Christ church's time to read the letter. And we're reading it together and so the we's and the us's include us. And again, in your outline, there, there are three things. Paul, Paul begins by expressing or describing um, the blessing of salvation. That's kind of the, the overarch, the umbrella here, the title that we're going with. He writes, after the greeting, he writes this one long sentence in the Greek. This whole thing from 3 to 14 is one long sentence. And it can be broken down into three parts. Or if we were thinking about a song, some of you understand singing or song language better. It would be three stanzas. Uh, to this, this, this letter, to this opening sentence. And these sections are distinguishable not only because of the object and the subject of each section, but each section concludes with the phrase either to the praise of His glorious grace or to the praise of His glory. So you have very distinguishing marks about this. And so in that phrase that ends each of these uh, segments or each of these stanzas or each of these... Uh, um, sections express a couple things. One, it it expresses that at at the end of each section, he just breaks into glorious praise. He does that throughout this letter when he's expressing these declarative truths. He just automatically breaks into doxology and worship. But it also expresses the fact that this phrase identifies the ultimate end of our salvation. He's reminding us over and over each step of the way that our salvation is to the glory of God. God is at the center of our salvation. We are not. Now the overall tone. Now I want to break this down into three sections for your outline. We're going to look at the purpose of the Father. We're going to look at the work of the Son. And then the ministry of the Spirit. And for, you, for those that are writing that down. The purpose of the Father. The work of the Son. And the ministry of the Spirit. But before he gets to that, he sets an overall tone of this praise and worship. Uh, And he does it immediately in verse 3. Because Paul understands that God is worthy of worship simply because of who he is. But here in verse 3, he says that God is to be worshipped and blessed because of what he's done. And, And that's okay. God is worthy of our praise because how he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there are four things that he emphasizes in that, in that phrase alone about having blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the first is this. It's past tense. He has blessed us. We're not waiting. Again, we're including ourselves in this. We are not waiting for a blessing. The blessings are now ours. We're, we're waiting, of course, to experience them in the fullness of glory. But as far as our possession is concerned, we have them right now. They are ours. Secondly, he says that they're ours in Christ. We, we have them because we have been united with Christ. Apart from him, they would not be ours. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing because we have been united to Christ. In other words, we have not earned or merited any of those blessings whatsoever. They've been given in the name of and for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so we're blessed, not only because we've been united to Him, but those blessings have come because of that union. Three, he says, they're comprehensive. Every spiritual blessing. There's nothing left out. And contrary to what we hear today, we're not waiting for some second blessing. 
And we also don't have to purchase a blessing that we are somehow without. We don't have to sow a seed in order to be blessed in some way because we already have them. They're ours, every one of them. Whatever we require spiritually has been given to us. And that's not just Paul's opinion, that's Peter's as well. He says that we've been granted all things pertaining to life and godliness. There's nothing that we are lacking that God requires. And then lastly, these blessings are heavenly. They're spiritual in nature. They're not physical or material blessings that the health and wealth preachers are hideously proclaiming. They're blessings that are spiritual and eternal. They're they're kept in heaven for us. And and as we'll read through this letter, when we realize we have been seated with Christ in those places, they are already ours. The the richness of, of that truth just there is worth our time. Now from there, after describing that these are all the blessings, he begins to kind of break down this blessing of salvation that's included in all those spiritual blessings. It's as if salvation is one big blessing, but each part of this salvation is is a blessing in and of itself. And if you haven't noticed by the outline, we see that salvation is, is Trinitarian. The Father is involved, the Son is involved, and the Spirit is involved. And first he says and reminds us of the purpose of the Father. The first blessing he he bursts forth in is that the Father has chosen us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. It was a choice that God made. And and He uses words like chosen and predestined. Uh, These these two words are, are two parts of the same divine act in that we have been, as believers, we know that we were marked out beforehand and chosen to be saved in and through Christ, both individually and as a part of the body of Christ. We are a part of one another. Because we've been united to Christ, we say this every week, because we've been united to Christ, we're united to one another. And our salvation is individual and it's corporate. But he also says not only were we chosen on purpose, we've been chosen for particular purposes. Okay? And he says, one, he chose us to be holy and blameless. And we think in terms of verse 3... We could look at this and say, okay, he's blessed us in a couple of ways. There are two blessings that are part of this choosing, or actually three, but the first one can be broken down into two. Uh, We've been blessed by the Father's choice to have something removed from us and something given. In Christ, the Father purposed uh, to remove our shame and our guilt. God has purposed to remove our shame and our guilt due to the sin. Not only, not only the sin of the things that we do or the sins that we participate in or act on, but, but the, sins that, the, the sin that we inherited and were imputed with. The guilt and shame God the Father has purposed to remove so that we are without blemish and without any kind of blame whatsoever for that sin. That's what He's removed. But he's also given, he's also purposed to give us something. He's, he's, he's chosen to credit us with the righteousness of Christ. So that we're not just morally neutral or spiritually neutral, but we are actually holy. That we, he's purposed that we would stand before the Father holy and blameless. And again, that, that being in Christ. And so the Father, before the foundation of the world, chose to change our character. He also chose and purposed 
to change our standing. And that was what we were talking down here with, with the children just a few minutes ago. He's chosen us, Paul says, for adoption. He's chosen to change our standing and our position. And he, and he doesn't simply want to make us servants. He doesn't purpose to make people his servants. He, makes, he purposes to make them his children. Sons and daughters. Not simply those that are going to do his bidding. But those who are going to be a part of the family. Who are, going to be, who are going to receive through that adoption all the rights and privileges that Christ himself has. Co-heirs. And again, he says, it has nothing to do with our worthiness. It has nothing to do with our merit. It has nothing to do with our behavior or even our potential. As we were talking, children, as we were talking about Joshua and Benjamin, their parents did not choose them because they had some potential or that they had been behaving or that they had done any good work. They chose to love them and to include them and bring them into their family. It was a gracious act on their part. It had nothing to do with, with, with the behavior of the boys. Our adoption by God has nothing to do with our behavior. He chose us to be holy and blameless and to adopt us. He chose to set His love upon us. He chose and He, and he did so that His grace might be praised. Another way of saying that because we're praising an attribute of His. We're actually praising Him. So He... All of that has been done because he loved us and that, so that he might be glorified. That's what drove the Father to purpose, to purpose to save us. But Paul's just getting started and he doesn't stop there. Again, our salvation is Trinitarian. So all three are involved and he moves in this blessing of salvation. He moves from the purpose of the Father to the work of the Son. The Son, Jesus Christ, is involved. He, look at verse 7. He says that the Father had not only purposed and planned to change our character and our standing, but that He had purposed and planned the means through which that was going to take place. He didn't just set something in motion and then hope that it came about. He didn't set something in motion without an idea of how it was going to take place. He, set, he purposed to bring something about and then He purposed the means to bring it about, to accomplish that. And that was through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, having nothing to do with us. And it was a mystery. And, and those that say, well, this was plan B. No, this is a, Paul says this is a mystery. Having been revealed to us now in this time, it was, it was revealed in types and shadows in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Christ being revealed, we know that at the appropriate and determined time, Christ came and accomplished what the Father had determined to do. And we see that fully. And Paul identifies three specific blessings in that work of the Lord Jesus. He says that we're redeemed. We've sung about it already tonight. We've sung about most of this already tonight. But we've been redeemed. Uh, the word means to release from captivity. And actually, the, the word, the specific, there are six different words. This specific word speaks of a friend or a family member purchasing that friend or family member, out of prison, releasing them, paying that price and releasing them from captivity. So when Christ went to the cross and he did so, we, the, uh, Paul says that he did so through his blood, meaning through his death. So the Lord Jesus, we, we, we've all learned the verse, you know, greater love hath no one than this and one who lays down his life for his friend. 
So the Lord Jesus, as our friend, pays the penalty to, to release us from captivity, but not so that we would just continue to be a friend, but that we, we, we'd be a brother and sister of His. He's paid the price that we might, that we might be redeemed. Because God couldn't just turn a deaf eye, deaf eye, deaf ear, or blind eye to our sin. He's just and holy, and the punishment had to be carried out. And so, what does He do? He, he withholds that which we deserve. He's merciful and withholds what we deserve, places that upon His Son, causes that. Cause, he, he goes to the cross on our behalf to, to pay that debt that we owed, releasing us. But Paul adds forgiven to that. That's the second part of this. He says you're redeemed but you're also forgiven. You say, well, isn't that the same thing? And no, it's, it's not really the same thing. It's, it's all a part of our salvation. But understand that His blood, it, it removed, and we've spoken of this already, but it removed our guilt. It would be one thing for Christ to pay the penalty of our sin and us be released from captivity, but for us to remain guilty. But through His blood, through the imperishable blood of Christ, we've not only been released from captivity, that guilt has been washed away. So now we're no longer in captivity, but we're no longer guilty. He took care of it all. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then the third thing he says is that in Christ we've obtained an inheritance. We, we need to understand that Paul was a Jew, uh, but he was also Roman. And he was writing to those that were living in a Roman province. And so understanding Roman culture would be helpful here. In the Roman culture, the minute a child was born or adopted, they immediately became heirs. And what was the father's and the mother's was also the child's. They didn't have to wait. Yes, again, when, when the father and the mother passed away and that inheritance became theirs, but it, in reality... They were simply getting what was really already fully theirs. It was already their possession. They may not, you know, the, the parents were there, but, but it was still their possession. It was a joint possession between father and children. That's how that was set up. And so the, this physical reality represented an intimate and eternal bond between father and his children. And so as Paul writes this, when we add that to the fact that Paul uses the past tense of the verb that we have obtained, and then when you, we read in Romans 8, 17, when Paul uses the words that we are fellow heirs, it's very clear, it's very real that even though full and complete fulfillment won't be realized until glory, we are already in possession of that inheritance that awaits us. It's already ours. We can think of it in this way. What awaits us? We're awaiting, of course, heaven. We're awaiting being in the presence of Christ. We're, we're awaiting fullness of joy and love. We're, we're awaiting total absence of sin. We're awaiting no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, no more division. We're awaiting that time when there is no more abuse or racism, sexism, or any other ism. We're, we're awaiting that time when all things will be made new and all things being united and all people being united under the reign of Christ. But what is ours now? 
We're not simply waiting. What is in our possession now? That Those things are being kept. Peter says those things are being kept in heaven for us. So they're ours. But we also experience blessings today. What are those things that are ours now? We've already read a few. Adoption, redemption, forgiveness, righteousness, right standing before the Father, grace, mercy, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, discernment, wisdom, power, strength. We could keep going. They're ours in Christ. And again, this inheritance that, that Peter says is, that is being kept for us, it's imper- he also says it's imperishable, undefiled, unfade- and unfading. It's, it's an inheritance that's a, that, that is the sum total of all the blessings in, in Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that he breaks out into praise to his glorious grace? And what's really neat about this section is he said we can't forget that, yes, we have nothing to do with it, but he says that this grace that, that we are to praise because of what he's done to us, that grace he's lavished on us. It superabounds. It's there's there's enough. It, it exceeds what we need. In other words, we cannot outsin the grace of God. It is impossible to outsin the grace of God because He's lavished it on us. It's boundless. It's infinite. And again, this redemption is not, is completely a work. Of God. Nothing. We contribute nothing but our sin. Well, in verses 13 and 14, Paul completes his thought and he describes the Spirit's work in applying this purposeful work to us. He says that we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're adopted, we've obtained an inheritance, and we obtained all that when we heard the gospel and believed in Jesus. When we heard the gospel and believed in Jesus, and that's the same message that he shared with the Romans and the Corinthians and the Galatians. And yet we know that not everyone who hears the gospel believes in Jesus. We know that the gospel is preached, but not everyone believes. And that was Paul's purpose in writing in Romans chapter 10. And I want to read verses 13 to 17 When he makes that point, he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who obeyed the gospel. But for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I, I, I skip part. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel is proclaimed, and the difference between those who, who believe and those who don't is the Holy Spirit. The difference is the Holy Spirit. It was the Spirit who inspired the authors to write. It is the Spirit who illuminates and opens the eyes and ears and truth of the gospel in the Scripture. And it is the Spirit who regenerates and brings those who are spiritually dead to spiritual life. 
The Spirit is the difference. It's the ministry of the Spirit and the Word that creates faith. And He creates that faith in the heart of the believer, and it's the Spirit who enables those that the Father has chosen and the Son has died for to hear the voice of Christ. And Paul says, at that moment we believe, we were sealed. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And, and many of you have already heard this before, and, and you're aware of this, but in Paul's day, that the, 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 the imagery there is of a, a, a wax being dripped on, on an envelope and the signet ring pressing down on that wax so that it was sealed officially. There are three things that are a part of that. First, it, it spoke of ownership. Uh, in a bill of sale, it would be sealed, and that, that signet ring would, would certify that who, you know, this, the possession, it, it signified possession of the one who had that paper in, in, in their hands. Uh, it also signified security. Right? It, it kept that envelope closed, and if you opened it, if you weren't the one that it was to, you had to answer to the king. And then finally, it, it spoke of authenticity. This is from the king. And so when Paul says that we have been sealed, that believers, when Paul says that those who are believers and faithful in Christ Jesus are sealed, he's expressing that idea that when, we, when a person believes and places their, uh, places their faith in Christ, they become a possession of the Father. 1 Peter 2 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We're His. And there's nothing that will remove us from Him. And that leads us to the second one. A person, when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, place their faith in Him, they are secured. There's nothing, there's no one, there's not anything that can remove them from from out of the, uh, the hands of the Father. Nothing that can be done for them to lose their salvation. And thirdly, that salvation is authenticated. Paul's point is that the assurance, and I'm going to come back to this in just a minute, very important, but Paul, as he puts this together, he says that the the assurance of salvation comes in the form of belief in the gospel. Because apart from the Spirit, we would not believe. And Paul puts all those things together. We've got to remember it's all in one sentence. So he's saying that the assurance that we have of our salvation is the fact that we believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is that guarantee. And apart from the Spirit, we would have never believed the gospel. And, and then he does the same thing, right? To the praise of the glory of God. To the praise and glory to, to, the, to the praise of God's grace. Because again, it is Him who has saved us. Now, I want us all, we, we, we read through that, but I want us all to be encouraged tonight. I want us to, to we, we hear that, we've, we're already encouraged just by hearing that as we read this, as if we've been handed that letter in that, in that cyclical fashion, and, and we hear us and we, and we're a part of that, but I want to be a little more specific, because I need that, and I think, I think many of you need that. And I say that because we have to admit that there may be some in our midst who are struggling tonight 
Or if they haven't, they have before and they're, they're struggling with a couple of things. They may be struggling with the assurance of their salvation. And, and we struggle with our salvation because there, in, in some cases there might be some uh, besetting sin that we just can't mortify. It just keeps rearing its ugly head. And so we begin, when we're in that struggle, we begin to, to doubt our salvation. Or there may be things that you've done, as we confessed earlier, things that you've done or things that you've left undone that seem to never go away. They seem to be mounting. Or you're... Let's be honest, you're just not the husband and wife or father and mother or son or daughter or co-worker that, that you want to be and feel that the Lord has called you to be. And that, that can weigh on us and cause us to doubt. And maybe, maybe you tonight you're unable to forgive someone that hurts you. Or maybe you just have questions about your faith. And we need to hear this letter. We need to hear the truth that Paul shares with us tonight. Some of you may be doubting God's love for you. Maybe there's an emotional or a physical pain that just won't heal. And you keep asking God, why? Or maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're struggling with, with hopelessness and struggling with the weight of depression. Maybe you're here and it seems as though nothing, nothing ever comes easy. Everything in life is just one uphill battle after the other. Never get a break. Where's God when that seems to happen? Or maybe it's just really basic. I'm such a screw-up, how could God love me? And you may not fall into any of those categories. You, you may not be there, but maybe you have at one time, or maybe you will be in the future. But brothers and sisters, I, be encouraged. Be encouraged. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There isn't anything that you're waiting on. You don't lack anything. You haven't been shortchanged. You haven't been overlooked. He's not withholding anything, and he's not waiting for you to merit one single solitary thing. He's blessed you. It's yours. Be encouraged tonight. God chose you. He set His love upon you. He he set His uh, purpose to change your character, to change your position. You've been redeemed. You are not guilty. You've been adopted into His family. And all of that happened before the foundation of the world. It's proof positive that there's it wasn't based on anything that you could ever do or have done it has nothing to do with your performance or your ability or your potential you've been united to christ and that is the basis for all that you have he didn't wait for you to get it all together he's not waiting for you to get it all together he didn't wait for you to clean yourself off and make yourself whole he purposed to take you as you were and to make you into what he desired you to be Be encouraged tonight that because of your union with Him and your work on His behalf, you're a new person. You're no longer guilty of your sin. You're no longer an enemy of His. You've been purchased and set free. You're now a child of the living God. The payment of your sin has been paid. And you stand before Him holy and blameless and righteous and good. 
your identity is new. You're not defined by your past, present, or future sin. You're, you're, not, you're not identified by anything you've done or will do. You're not defined by anything anyone else has done to you. You're new. You've been adopted and nothing can change or reverse that. It's binding. Because it's been sealed with the imperishable blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be encouraged. Because I know in many evangelical circles, the clearest proof of our salvation comes in the form of some, some sort of spiritual activity. The reasoning goes like this. You can, only be, you, you can only be saved or you can't be saved apart from the Spirit. So because you have the Spirit, those who are saved will exhibit the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so the basis of their salvation involves loving each other, loving our neighbor, obeying the commands of Christ, and exhibiting the, the fruit of the Spirit. But please hear me. While that is true, in terms of we are, because we are in the Spirit, we are to exhibit those things. We've been saved. We are to love our neighbor. We, are, we have been enabled to love, our neighbor, to love God and to love our neighbor. And it, it's no longer a burden. And we should desire to do that. And we are to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit who is at work within us. And it should be evident in our lives. It isn't the clearest proof of our salvation. It's not that which we should base the assurance of our salvation. Why? Why does Paul not include that? Because some days are better than others, right? There are days when we feel like we've got it all together and we're exhibiting those things and we, we think to ourselves, no doubt I'm saved, but what happens when Monday comes? And we struggle. And we, we, we're not living in those ways that, that we think that we should or that the Bible describes there is nothing you or I can do to maintain our salvation because there's nothing that we can do to possess it. And if we're basing all of our assurance on our activity, we're in deep trouble. And that's why Paul says the clearest proof of our salvation and of our redemption and our adoption and our inheritance and of our being sealed by the Spirit is our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we grow in our sanctification, we realize how much more of a sinner we really are. And as we grow, we lean more and more into Jesus. It's really others. I heard this this week. It was really good. It's really others who see us growing in sanctification. They see it more than we do. We see more and more of our sin. They see us growing in the Spirit. we find ourselves leaning more and more into Jesus. So, so when, be encouraged that when you need to be assured of your salvation, when we all need to be assured of our salvation, we shouldn't look to ourselves or our level of faithfulness or our level of faithlessness. We should look to the Father and His unfailing faithfulness toward us. When we're doubting our salvation, when we're struggling with the assurance of our salvation, we shouldn't look to ourselves and to our sin or to our lack of sin or our work or our lack of work. We should look to Christ and His work on our behalf. 
when we're struggling with, with our assurance of our salvation, we shouldn't look to ourselves and the promises that we've made to Him. We should look to the promise of the Holy Spirit and all the promises of God that are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. What does He promise? Bottom line is we shouldn't look to ourselves at all, but remind ourselves of what we believe about Jesus and His gospel. And it's right here. It's right here. And when we really think about it, it's no wonder that Paul breaks into praise. It's no wonder that he breaks into worship. And so my prayer is that when we go tonight, that we go and live as those who have been loved perfectly, completely, and forever. That we would go and live as those who have no need of anything, who have everything, and not only everything, but to overflowing. To the praise of the, and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God the Father for what He has done for us. Let's pray together. Father, I prayed earlier that you would plant these truths deep within our hearts because I know that none of us are able to keep your word unless you inscribe it upon our hearts by your spirit. And again, as I do regularly, I would pray that you would keep Satan from us so that it wouldn't be snatched away. I pray that you'd soften our hearts and water what's been planted so it doesn't dry up? Would you remove any cares and concerns of the world that would choke it out? And would you cause it to germinate and bring forth good fruit? Fruit for your glory and the sake of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.